Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we started doing virtual visits. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. Today on Something You Should Know, next time you get a cough, something in your kitchen has been proven to help more than any over-the-counter medicine. Then, bugs, insects. You depend on them more than you know. Insects are in everything we think of. We're eating them. They're on our bodies. And in fact, insects may, this may be gut-churning for some of your listeners, but may be the future of the world's food supply. Also, how to get that last little bit out of the jar or tube, and whether or not it's even worth it. And why having everything isn't all it's cracked up to be. In fact, too much success can be hard to live with. Well, there's a fragility that happens. You know, failure is different than success because in failure, we can constantly live in hope. When we live in a place of extraordinary success, we live in constant fear that we're going to fall off our perch. All this today on Something You Should Know. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey, welcome to Something You Should Know. As I sit here recording this today, it is 108 degrees outside my window. And there's just, there's something about this kind of heat that just makes you want to do nothing. But the show must go on, and today's episode starts with some advice for the next time you get a cold or a cough. Try honey. New research shows that honey is more effective at treating cough and cold than antibiotics or over-the-counter medication. Experts at Oxford University said doctors are better off telling patients to have a spoonful of honey rather than prescribing antibiotics. Overall, honey was found to be superior at relieving coughs, sore throat, and congestion. And unlike other medications, it has no harmful side effects. Specifically, honey, on average, was 36% more effective at reducing cough frequency than common medications, and it cut cough severity by 44% more. The reason it works is apparently because... Well, first of all, it contains hydrogen peroxide, which gives it antimicrobial properties. And it's because of that that it's been used in traditional medicine as a topical antibiotic for centuries. And secondly, because it is thick and sticky, honey has a soothing effect on the throat that can reduce irritation and help relieve a dry, tickly cough. And you don't have to eat it straight if you don't like the taste of just eating pure honey. Even putting it in tea helps. And that is something you should know. You don't have to go far to find insects. They're everywhere. And you probably think of them more as pests than anything else. 
But insects actually do a lot of wonderful and amazing things. In fact, your life would be very hard without some of these insects. Insects are also a food source. There's a good chance you've eaten an insect recently, or parts of one, or the secretions of one. (laughs) And yeah, that sounds kind of gross, but insects are important in many ways and becoming more important. Here to explain is Edward Melillo. He's a professor of history and environmental studies at Amherst College, and he's author of the book, The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World. Hi, Professor. Thanks for having me. So when I think of insects, just generally think about them, I don't think of them as being a big help, (laughs) helping humanity and helping the world at all. When we think of insects, we think of problems that they cause. We think of diseases, Zika, West Nile virus, yellow fever, malaria, dengue fever, that have been the scourges of of humans throughout world history. Um, And we think of insects plaguing crops. The world's farmers spend something on the order of $16 billion annually on insecticides. And so that's the traditional view of insects. But I began investigating the other side of the story and wanted to tell that tale, which is that essentially insects are in everything we think of as resolutely modern. Um, In fact, we're eating them. They're on our bodies. Um, Most genetic science is totally dependent on studies done on the fruit fly. Pollination is a major contribution that insects make to our daily lives. Something like one in every three bites of food that the average human takes comes from a plant that was actually pollinated by an insect. Uh, And in fact, insects may, and this may be gut-churning for some of your listeners, but may be the future of the world's food supply. Ooh, yum. Sounds tasty. So, uh, the definition of an insect is what? An insect has six things that you want to think about when you're thinking about what is an insect. Well, first it has a three-part body. It's got a head, a thorax, and an exoskeleton. The skeleton on an insect is on the outside. That exoskeleton is usually semi-transparent. Light can shine through it. Um, Thirdly, all insects have three pairs of jointed legs. So everything with six legs is an insect. So the spider you see crawling around your bathroom um, is not an insect. It's an arachnid. But insects all have six legs. They've all got antenna. That's the fourth thing. They all have compound eyes made up of multiple facets, kind of like a gem, um, which is a great advantage when you're either pursuing prey or running from predators because you can see almost 360 degrees around you. Uh, And all insects have two pairs of wings. Um, And so that's what makes an insect an insect. When you look at all the different varieties of insects, are you able to say they all have a purpose? I mean, sure, I'm sure everyone has sat around and been, you know, mm-hmm. bitten by a mosquito and thought, why do we even have them? What, why are they here? What purpose do they serve? And I wonder, do, do they all have a function and a purpose for the world, or are they often just pests? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them have have purposes and functions that kind of go unannounced that we don't see all the time, because insects have a way of not only 
hiding under the trash can and behind the fridge, but a lot of what they do is underground, in the grass, and out of sight. And many insects that we might think of as not having any purpose, so to speak, are doing really important things, like they're breaking down organic matter. We call that decay, which is really vital to the way that the world functions, because if you can't break down organic matter and return those nutrients to the soil, then everything stops. Farming uh, is impossible and most ecosystems can't survive. So a lot of the times the things that insects do are are out of sight. Some beetles are involved in, as are flies, in breaking down the dead bodies of, of creatures after they die in the wilderness. And other insects are doing all sorts of things that we don't think about on a day-to-day basis, but they're producing components of our food system, and they're in everything, ubiquitous day-to-day products like uh, nail polish and hairspray, and uh, insect secretions used to be on the floors of bowling alleys, and 78 RPM records were made out of an insect secretion, and uh, people dyed their clothes with insects. So it's sort of it's sort of a tale of all the things that insects are doing that are unannounced that we don't think about on a daily basis. So I guess to sort of sum it up to answer your question, yes, a lot of insects have purposes for the functioning of the world that we never see, remark upon, or think about. Bees are insects, right? Yes, bees are insects, and and without them we'd be in, in real trouble. I actually... Um, have done a lot of thinking about how important bees are to the almond crop in California, which is, of course, absolutely massive and um, depends on on billions of bees pollinating it every year. And they're actually shipped in um, in crates from from long distances away on trucks every year in the fall to pollinate California's massive almond crop, which is actually the United States' seventh largest agricultural export. And without those bee pollinators, um, you know, these millions of almond trees would not be able to produce a single nut. Um, so when you're, when you're on an airplane next time and you're opening that little bag of almonds, you might think about the fact that there was an insect involved in its, its coming to fruition, quite literally. So. There's been talk, I've certainly read and heard things about in the, the uh, concern about bees disappearing. What, what is that about? The big picture story is that upwards of 40% of insect species are in decline and about a third are endangered globally. Um, and in the specific case of bees, we're talking about colony collapse disorder, which is a phenomenon identified first in 2007. Um, and it's, it's shown up in terms of the massive declines in numbers in many hives that apiaries and beekeepers keep for pollinating um, flowering crops around the world. And there are a couple possible causes of this. The science is not conclusive yet, but one of them is a parasitic mite with the great name Varroa destructor. Sounds like a creature out of a science fiction film, um, but it actually sucks out the hemolymph from bees, which is like their blood, and ends up killing uh, bees in their hive. But then the other big culprit seems to be a class of pesticides 
that are called neonicotinoids, or neonics for short. And what these pesticides do, these insecticides to be specific, is they, they kill insects to protect plants of farmers' crops, but they also seem to be destroying the beneficial ones as well. Um, and there are compounds that mimic nicotine, of course, comes from tobacco, uh, but they seem to be really destructive for bee populations. And one of our real concerns is that, you know, without this essential pollinator, we're going to be in real trouble trying to produce food from flowering plants in the future. Um, most pollinators are bees. There's some 20,000 species of wild bees, but we depend upon domesticated bees uh, to do all this work. And without them, we'd be in real trouble. So bugs are figuratively on the table, insects to be exact, on the table for discussion. And I'm talking with Edward Melillo. He's a professor of history and environmental studies at Amherst College. And he is author of the book, The Butterfly Effect. So you own or rent your home, right? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. A new year is a good time to discover new interests. And if you have kids... A KiwiCo subscription will help your child discover something new all year long. As a subscriber, you get these very cool crates delivered to you that contain fun and innovative science and art projects, and they have different ones for kids of different ages. We've been KiwiCo subscribers for quite a while now, and some of the projects that my son has created are... A pinball machine, a safe, a hand pump, and the most recent one, he actually built the headphones I'm using right now in the studio. Encourage your child to be innovators and creative thinkers. They won't believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. As a parent, I know it's hard to find new creative ways to keep kids busy while stretching their imagination, especially now. KiwiCo does all the legwork for you. Get real, high-quality engineering, science, and art projects for your kids. And don't be surprised if you join in to help, as I always do, because these projects are so much fun. KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid, or kid at heart, at KiwiCo. Get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with code SOMETHING at KiwiCo.com. That's 30% off your first month at KiwiCo.com, promo code SOMETHING. So, Edward, can you talk about some of the ways that humans have used bugs to their advantage. You had mentioned, you know, 78 records and some, just go through some of those and, and um, very quickly and, and talk about how we've kind of harnessed bugs and put them to work. So this is the thing that got me fascinated in this topic from, from the get-go, um, is that I started to look into three insect commodities that I argue 
animated world history in many ways. And they're a bit surprising, shellac, uh, cochineal, and silk. I'll talk about the second one in a little depth because your listeners may not have heard of it. Um, shellac, you may have heard of because people are used to thinking about shellacking their deck or shellacking a piece of furniture. And indeed, that's what it is. It's a substance that's secreted by the Kerialaka insect that grows in India and Southeast Asia on fig and acacia trees. And millions of people make their living by harvesting this tiny insect and its its secretion. The, the mother secretes the shellac to protect her young, and it basically is like sort of sort of bumps of waxy-looking stuff that surrounds a branch on these trees. Then the branch gets cut, shellac is scraped off, it's melted down, um, then dried and stretched out, and then sold in chips. And those chips are then turned into all sorts of products that you probably don't know you're eating and putting on your body, but as it turns out, they're everywhere. Um, one of the places that, that shellac is used is is to coat tablets and, and medicines that go into your stomach. And it's a non-toxic substance that then slows down the digestion of, say, aspirin in your stomach so that the medicine is released slowly in the body. So you're probably eating an insect secretion. Um, it's on fruit from the grocery store. Apples are often made to look more shiny and to hold their water for longer on grocery store shelves by putting shellac on the outside. Um, the next one that I mentioned is cochineal, which um, is kind of a strange word, hard to pronounce. I always tell my students the mnemonic device is, can you coach an eel, uh, which you probably can't, <laughs> but that's how you remember how to say it. And it's a red dye that's made from crushing the bodies of female insects that grow on nopal cacti in Latin America. Um, and it's an amazing substance. You'll see it on ingredient lists on products that you may have on a daily basis, ruby red grapefruit juice or fruit on the bottom yogurt, or a lot of, lot of drink mixers like Campari used to use it to get the deep dark red color. Um, and it's an insect secretion that was so so lucrative that it was the second most expensive traded good in the Spanish Empire after only silver. Um, and everyone was after it because it produces this deep scarlet red that everyone in Europe wanted because for ecclesiastical vestments and royal robes, people wanted that deep red color. It was the color of power. Um, and then lastly, the third that I mentioned is one that may be more familiar to your listeners, silk which, of course, is, is ubiquitous in high fashion and, uh, and in low fashion in other places, too. I mean, many, many traditional costumes in, in countries around the world are, are made from silk, which, of course, is spun by silkworms that are dining on mulberry leaves and then are harvested for their cocoons. So those are examples of sort of products that are around us every day. We might put on a silk tie. We might... Uh, eat something that has cochineal in it. We might eat shellac is even in candy. If your kid goes trick-or-treating on Halloween, they're probably eating candy that's coated in an insect secretion without even knowing it.
So I get that insects are used in food for their color or for other reasons, but, but, and people don't even know they're eating insects, but are there places in the world where people, like, want to eat insects? Like, we want to eat hamburgers and french fries, they want to eat bugs. It's, it's truly amazing. Globally, about 2 billion people consume insects on a regular basis, just as a normal part of their daily diet. And uh, to us in the West, it may seem odd and even revolting, but this is such a normal part of most people's diets. And it turns out that eating insects may also kind of be part of the future because it's so much more efficient to get your protein from insects than it is from other kinds of meat. Um, and that's, that's where the sort of the pundits and the prognosticators who are betting on how we're going to feed 9 billion people on the planet by 2050 are thinking insects are going to have to be a big, big part of that. Um, and you see that in the way that the investment is being done. I mean, Bill Gates... Biz Stone, one of the Twitter co-founders, Mark Cuban, the billionaire whom people may know from Shark Tank, they've all put their money into cricket meal, um, which is essentially freeze-dried cricket bodies ground up into flour. Um, and if you go on Amazon or any of these websites, you can buy all sorts of different varieties of mixes for everything from brownies and pancakes and cupcakes to you name it, made out of cricket flour. Um, and the reason for that is it's just really efficient. You, to produce one pound of crickets, you need a gallon of water and about two cubic feet of space. And let's compare that. If you want to produce one pound of beef in the United States, you need a 1,000 gallons of water and two acres of grazing land. And it turns out the pound of crickets has three times the amount of protein, more iron, and more vitamins than the beef. So if you're thinking about efficiency, this is probably the way that the future of food is going to go. While you were talking, I, I was looking up on Amazon uh, to see cricket flour, and it's, it's amazing how many cricket products, cricket edible crickets, there are that you can buy on Amazon. So it's one thing, though, to, to, to do this for efficiency, but do, are there cultures where people really look forward to, like they really want, not because it's efficient, but because it's delicious, they want these insects. There's almost no culture on the planet where there isn't a major insect dish at the heart of the cuisine, in fact, and I'll, I'll admit to having tried a few of these, and I have some that I like better than others, but just to give you some examples, uh, in Mexico, it's very common to eat chapulines, which are essentially fried crickets, often served with a lot of chili and lime, and they just really taste like crunchy corn chips, basically. Um, and these have become so popular, even in the United States, that at a lot of baseball stadiums, they're now served as part of the, the game time snacks. Safeco Field, where the Seattle Mariners play, now has has featured uh, Chapelinas on the menu for baseball fans for several years now. And ESPN did a story on this about the resounding popularity that these little insect snacks have had among baseball fans. Um, in Japan, they eat zazamushi, which are insects that are scooped from riverbeds, insect larvae. Um, in South Africa, it's really common to eat mopanis, which are mopane caterpillars. 
Um, in fact, Malawi's president, Hastings Banda, was known for carrying pocketfuls of these around and handing them out to to children when he was traveling through various villages. He was a rather unsavory character, unfortunately, in terms of his politics, but he was known for handing out insect treats to kids. Um, in Thailand, they eat giant water bugs that are, that are often fried up with sauces and are uh, on every menu. And in Korea, you can find um, uh, bondegi, which are fried silkworm pupa that are either either boiled and steamed or or um, fried in oil, and they eat them in styrofoam cups with toothpicks, like their little street snacks. And I've tried my share of of all of these. I I appreciate some more than others, um, <laughs> so I have my own personal biases. But these are these are the mainstays of many cuisines, and it's really not considered at all odd. Um, to be eating insects as, as a centerpiece of your dining habits. So. And do they actually, like, can you taste the insect? Like, oh, that's a silkworm because that tastes like that, like we do chicken or... Or, or is it just a, a vehicle for sauces and things like that? No, you can, you can actually taste the insect in some of these, and I'm sure, you know, many of them require taste just the way many foods that that we consider, you know, commonplace in our own diets are certainly acquired tastes. Like, you know, I have, I have friends from China who think that cereal with milk is the most odd combination when they come to the U.S. for the first time. And conversely, you know, when I ate Mondegi, is actually in San Francisco's Koreatown, it's a bit like a cross between a shrimp and a peanut. Um, and it's an odd taste at first to get used to because it doesn't feel quite right in your mouth. You're sort of figuring out what's going on here. Um, and, and you know, I didn't happen to enjoy that particular combination, but I know some people absolutely love it. So the insect itself often imparts a taste. Sometimes, like with Chapolinas, it's sort of, yeah, you're right, it's a vector for, for the sauce and the coatings. But in other cases, I, I've eaten a mother termite, actually. And in that case, you could really the crunch-to-goo ratio wasn't quite right for my palate, and I could certainly taste the insect, but, you know, some people consider it a, a culinary delight. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is a very popular podcast. We have millions of people listen to this podcast, and I bet there isn't a single one of them listening right now who ever heard anyone say the sentence out loud, I've eaten the mother termite, and the crunch to goo ratio <laughs> wasn't quite right. Yuck. All right. Edward Malillo has been my guest. He is a professor of history and environmental studies <laughs> at Amherst College. And he's author of the book, The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World. There's a link to that book in the show notes. And uh, thanks for sharing the stories. Appreciate it, Edward. Sure. Thanks so much for interviewing me. This has been a real pleasure chatting with you. You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before. And the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here. And he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. 
Look, I really want you to give The Jordan Harbinger Show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram. And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea, as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy the Jordan Harbinger show, and and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, any credit card can offer cash back, but only Discover matches all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year. It's like getting one of those birthday cards that's shaped like cash so you already know there's cash inside before opening it. But in this case, it's stuffed with your first-year cash-back match, and you don't even have to send a thank-you note. Cash-back match, only by Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Discover. Something brighter. I think you would agree that we live in a very consumer-driven society. We want more, we want better, and... It's never quite enough. No matter how much money we make or how many toys we have, we still want more. Now, some might say, what's wrong with that? Why not want to constantly do better and have more? Whereas others see this as a problem, because if you always want more, you're never satisfied with what you have now. Here to pull the covers back on this interesting quirk of human nature is Paul Hockemeyer. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in treating ultra-high-net-worth individuals and celebrities. And he's author of the book, Fragile Power, Why Having Everything is Never Enough, Lessons from Treating the Wealthy and Famous. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thank you. It's good to be here. So there is this idea or this image of, you know, people wanting more, that it's never enough, as opposed to people who are satisfied with what they have, and they're grateful for what they have. But why can't you do both? Why can't you be grateful for what you have, but still want more? Well, you certainly can. It's tricky. You know, that's that's the key. That there's nothing wrong with aspiration. Um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to aspire to better. In fact, I think we should all be aspiring to better, but we need to make sure that it's a balance, that we are not um, compulsively in this compulsive hamster wheel of looking for more and more and more. I mean, look, human beings are, we are hunter-gatherers, so we are built to go out into the world and gather nuts and berries and bring them home and build comfortable nests. And, you know, we are living in somewhat of a problem-saturated world, actually, right now with COVID, I think, very much a problem-saturated world. Um, But we're very adaptive, and, and it's through our aspirations and it's through our ambition that we have that we will get through this and we will make the world a better place. I think, though, for many people, the idea that you should just be grateful for what you have, that you shouldn't want more, you shouldn't want better, 
really, I mean, that is the definition of ambition, is to want more and to do better. And when you say, well, you should just be grateful for what you have, I think that turns a lot of people off because, because we, wanna, we want to win. That's human nature, to want to win. Well, I agree with you 100%, and I'm not saying be happy with what you have. I think that we should all be striving for better and for more, but I think that we need to focus on the qualitative aspects of our life, peace of mind, serenity, values that that we have gotten away from in terms of being generous to other people, in terms of being able to store our planet, in terms of uh, being charitable to other human beings, instead of you know constantly thinking that we need a bigger house or a European sports car or a designer handbag. What do we know from the people who have gotten everything? You know, the billionaires and the millionaires. Uh, I've heard stories that you know they, they it's never it's never enough for them, and and they're kind of the ones we look to. Of God, if I could only have that, then everything would be fine. And you have experience with some of those people, so talk about them. Well, the people who really have made the most out of their wealth and uh, are people who have been able to give back to the community in some significant way. And we are, you know, we're living in a profoundly divided world. The gulf between the haves and the have-nots is extraordinarily wide. And the people who have been able to use their success in a way that gives them the most meaning uh, in their lives is by connecting with people who have less than and people who have been in providing services and resources to help people who are less fortunate to them. So it's this spirit of altruism that that is a human value, it's a human virtue, it transcends cultures, it transcends times, it transcends race, that people who have been profoundly successful in the material world have been able to translate into happiness and contentedness and peace of mind. But not, not because of their wealth. Well, not exclusively, right? It's not an all-or-nothing thing. We always want to put things in a binary, right? So, um, but it's it's their ability to integrate their wealth and utilize their wealth in a way that gives their wealth meaning and purpose. And where does that meaning and purpose come from? If you've if you've spent your whole life focused on the European sports car and the bigger house, where do you get a, a meaning and a purpose? Well, you have to find it. Those are typically the people who I see in my practice who have attained extraordinarily high levels of success, but they feel, oh my God, like my life has passed me by. I have a terrible relationship with my children. I really don't have any close friends who I can count on um, who, who aren't coming to me for anything other than my money. And so they experience what's called an existential crisis in their life. They have a crisis of meaning. And so there they are at the top of the hill with surrounded by all of their toys and they're profoundly alone and they are looking at kind of the last phase of their life and thinking, oh my goodness, I spent all my time and resources to, to get to this top of the hill and to stay at the top of the hill and to surround myself by the toys, but I don't have any of what we call the upholstery in life. So the things that provide comfort and meaning and, and direction and purpose. And look, we're, in addition to being hunter-gatherers, we are meaning-making creatures. Uh, out of all the animals, we have the most developed uh, prefrontal cortex, the front of our brain that uh, enables us to make meaning out of our lives. And we all want to make meaning out of our lives, right? We all want to know that we have done something important and significant 
on uh, on the limited amount of time that we have on this earth. So talk about, I mean, I I've, I've remember talking to someone, I don't remember who it was, uh, very successful, well-known, big celebrity successful kind of guy who said, uh, in, in commenting about this whole thing about work-life balance, and he said, you know what, I missed a lot of baseball games, Little League games. I didn't go to all the track meets. I did work weekends, and I don't regret a minute of it that my meaning came from my work, I loved what I did, and this idea that, that if you feel that way, there's something wrong with you, uh, he said, I believe is baloney. Mm-hmm. Well, good for him. He certainly has found meaning and purpose in his life and is contented with his life. Look, there isn't a you know 100% fits all, this is for everybody, right? I mean, we have to create meaning individually in our lives, and we do get into trouble when we look to other kind of dominant cultural messages to tell us who we should be and how we should be happy. So kudos to the person who you talked to who, you know, devoted his resources in a way that gave him the most meaning and purpose in his life. Um, but again, it's, it's not for everybody. And, you know, we need to get away from trying to put everybody in this one-size-fits-all. You know, we have to recognize what's important to us in our lives um, and then pursue those goals. And what, what we have gotten into, I'm afraid, particularly with, with the advent of, say, reality television and the Internet, um, is looking at veneers and looking at the veneers of success and thinking that those are the things that, we are, that are going to give us uh, pleasure and happiness. But, but life is not, not meant to be lived by observing others. It's meant to be a, a process that we engage in in ourselves and experiment with and, and, and find our own path and find our own direction. But there's always been that curiosity of what's behind the curtain of, you know, you know what goes on, you know, in the royal family, the the stars of Hollywood, and more recently, there's been all these these reality shows about the reality stars and 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 movie stars and how they live their life, and wouldn't it be nice? It almost seems human nature to want to view that and maybe secretly aspire to that. It is, 100%. And if you look at our our worship of celebrity, it transcends times, it transcends cultures. We can go back to the Greek gods. They were our first celebrities, right? Those were, those were the larger-than-life figures who enabled us to find meaning and purpose and direction in our lives. And, and we get that from, uh, from, from, from looking at celebrities. And celebrities give us an extraordinary escape from, from the challenges of our own particular life. They give us role models to, to aspire to. And as you mentioned quite early in our conversation, there's nothing wrong with aspiration. And we need to be aspirational and we need to be striving for better, and and just celebrities enable us to do that. So there's an element of escape. There's an element of, of hope, right? So that we think that, you know, maybe one day we can have those particular lives. Um, and it enables us to keep striving for something better. Um, and uh, human beings are, we are hierarchical. We like to arrange ourselves in hierarchies, and we like to be led by 
charismatic leader. So it's, it's hardwired into our DNA, um, and it appeals very much to our sense of place and security and how we make meaning in our world. But then when those things don't happen, when you don't get the, the mansion in Beverly Hills and you don't get the, you know, the billion-dollar bank account, is, is that a problem? Or do pe- people just adjust or say, well, you know, I missed that one, but that's okay, life's good? Or I mean, is, is all this aspiration leading to a big letdown? Can be if you haven't if, they, if you've been very um, singularly focused if you haven't developed quality relationships in your life that give your life the upholstery and give your life the comfort and give your life the meaning. So again, it's you know it's a balance. We kind of always have to go back to these these things are these are not new, right? These are not new concepts that we need to have balance in our life. That yes, we need to be striving for better, and yes, we need to 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 appreciate what we have in our present. And most importantly, we need to have quality connections with other human beings that, that, that we feel proud of and that give our life meanings. If you typically ask parents, for instance, what are you most proud of? It's their children. Um, you know, being a parent is extraordinarily gratifying. So um, maybe there are people who would say my BMW or my... Uh, my handbag, um, but those people are going to be the exception as opposed to the rule. But again, it, it you can have all those friends and relationships and have a BMW as well. It's not either or. Exactly, and I'm, I don't think I'm saying that. And if, I, if, if I'm saying that to you, um, I'm not saying the right thing, that I agree with you 100%, that it's a balance, it's a titration. There is that. I mean, I think everybody has at some point in their life, if they're old enough, you know, taken the limo, gone to that real exclusive restaurant, stayed in the really fancy hotel. And it's, it's pretty nice, you know, that you get treated really, really well and you feel very special. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard to go back to your old life the next day when you've had that little taste of glamour. But some people go back to life and everything's fine. But I, I guess th- th- it's almost that taste is very, very tempting. It's seductive and it's intoxicating and it can be an addictive process. So when we go to a fancy restaurant, we're treated like royalty, right? Because we're paying a lot of money and that t- taps into something very primal in us as human beings, which is this need to be seen and validated by other human beings, because we are relational creatures. And so when we're validated and seen as special, boy, that taps very much into our primal brain and shoots us full of all sorts of wonderful hormones, dopamine, oxytocin, and um, it certainly elevates us. And some people can get addicted to that. Um, and they just kind of want, they want more and more and more of it. And they strive and strive and strive and become very singularly focused on doing that. I imagine that social media doesn't help this at all because everybody's wanting to put on a good face and everybody wants to let everybody know how great they are and successful they are and how wonderful this thing is that happened to me recently. And and when you preoccupy yourself with putting on that face, I, I, I imagine that contributes to this whole problem. Very much so. It's that focus on veneer, and then 
social media is very tied to numbers, right? So I have an Instagram account and I have a thousand people who follow me. Well, that's not enough because uh, Khloe Kardashian has 2.5 million. And so there's this, you know, chronic need to, to, to determine one's self-worth by how many how many likes you have or how many people are following you and um, that becomes very much a slippery slope doesn't it because then you are tied to what we just talked about which is this concept of tolerance right so if I have a thousand followers on my Instagram account that's not enough I need to have 5,000 and then I need to have 30,000 and then if I don't get if I post something and I only get a hundred likes then I have a sense of withdrawal because, well, wait a minute, last week I posted something and I had 500 likes. So, again, it's tying one's sense of self and one's validity to these external markers of, of success. So explain what it means to have everything, since you work with high net worth individuals and celebrities who seemingly have everything. And if you have everything, well, that implies that you have everything. So, but when you do have everything, how does it look from there? Well, there's a fragility that happens with people who have attained extraordinary levels of power so that we we don't fully appreciate the vulnerability where they live in and you know failure is different than success because in failure we can constantly live in hope right we can constantly even live in hope that tomorrow will be a different day and we can keep tweaking ourselves and getting it better and finally achieve the levels of success that we want when we live in a place of extraordinary success we live in constant fear that we're, we're, we're going to fall off our perch or the success that we have is not sustainable. So, so it's two very different paradigms to live in. In, in failure, we can, we can live in hope and in extraordinary success. We tend to live in fear that we're going to lose what we have. And in that place of fear, there's the fragility that underlines the power that, that we present to the world. It's hard to see that, I think, for people that if you have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, a billion dollars in the bank, how you could ever worry about falling off your perch because uh, you couldn't spend it fast enough. That's right. Yeah, and so again, the answer is not sort of in the quantitative aspect. It's not in the dollars. It's in the quality of the relationships that you have with other human beings. Well, in a way, it's weirdly comforting to know that having everything isn't everything. It's not all it's cracked up to be. And, and to strive to have everything, to have all the toys and the money, it may be good, but, but there are other things that are just as important that need your attention as well. Paul Hockemeyer has been my guest. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in treating high net worth individuals and celebrities. And he's author of the book, Fragile Power. Why having everything is never enough. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you for coming on, Paul. It is a universal frustration, I think, to try to get that last little bit of whatever it is out of the bottle. Skin lotion, mustard, ketchup. It's always tough to get that last little bit. Consumer Reports did a test, and here's what they found. Skin lotion is the worst. That's because you can leave up to one-fifth of the entire contents of the bottle inaccessible. 
because the lotion sticks to the side of the container. The remedy is to add a little bit of water and shake or carefully cut open the container and scoop it out. Mustard and ketchup are also tough, and again, the answer is to just add a little water. For toothpaste, it turns out that a toothpaste squeezer can be effective and will eventually, (laughs) not sure how long, but eventually it will pay for itself in the amount of toothpaste that you save and then therefore don't have to buy. Consumer Reports also measured whether products actually pack the amount of product in the container that they claim to. And it turns out they do. And that is something you should know. I love ratings and reviews, and we've been getting some very nice ones lately. Please feel free to add yours to the list and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.